0: Our reading for today is from John 21, verses 1 to 14. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish in it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring up some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them. And did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Here ends the reading.
1: John is one of the disciples who was there with Jesus. At the end of chapter 20 of his gospel John writes this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote his gospel so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing, by having faith in that belief, we may have life. The life that he refers to is not just eternal life, but also an understanding of life here on earth. This understanding is ours if we live our lives in his name. If we have Jesus dwelling within us. But what does this mean? Let's look more closely at this story for clues that will help us understand what it means to have Jesus in us. In doing this, I want to look at the passage under the following headings. First, the location, then the disciples, then going fishing, the man on the shore, Peter's reaction, and the great catch. Several days after the festival of unleavened bread, The disciples, at Jesus' instruction, had traveled from Jerusalem in the south of Galilee in the north to wait for Jesus. They had arrived on the shores of the sea. The Sea of Galilee is also known by a few other names in the Bible. Lake Tiberias, Kinnaret, or Kinnareth. It's a freshwater lake in northern Israel. It's the lowest freshwater lake on earth. And it's the primary source of fresh water for all of Israel. It was on the shores of Galilee that Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. It's also where Jesus recruited his first four disciples. It's where he calmed the sea, where he walked on water and on whose shores he cast demons out of pigs. This is also the place where Jesus demonstrated his power over creation by calming the sea and the wind. Galilee, the lake and its shoreline, is Jesus' classroom. It's his lecture theatre, his tutorial space, where he teaches his disciples about the Kingdom of Heaven. There are seven disciples present, Peter. He's a fisherman and evidently very good at what he does. I'm sure that most of us know someone who is like Peter, the fisherman. Then there's James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were not only fishermen but also business owners. They ran a business catching and selling fish with their father, Zebedee. Then there was Nathaniel and Thomas, who though we are not told of their background, may have also had fishing experience. The last two disciples are not mentioned, are not named. They could either be Andrew and Philip, who lived in that general area, or John deliberately did not name them, and they could represent any two of the other disciples. We don't know. Here they are, waiting on the shores of Galilee, waiting for Jesus to arrive when Peter says, I'm going out to fish. We get that sense that Peter wants to do something. He wants to be busy. We know that he's an impulsive character who always seems to be on the go. It could be that he was finding it hard to simply hang around waiting for something to happen. So he decides to go fishing. The others there agree to go with him. We'll go with you, they say. Now we're not sure why they decided to go fishing. It could be to fill in time, as I said. It could be that they needed fish to eat uh, and perhaps some to sell so that they could sustain themselves. Or perhaps they were unsure of what they were supposed to do after the resurrection. And so they went back to something that they were familiar with, to an occupation they knew until further instructions. In reflecting on this situation, one commentator says this, the fishing expedition plainly reveals the uncertainty of the disciples, an uncertainty which contrasts sharply with their assurances and their sense of purpose from the day of Pentecost. So at this point in their story, the disciples lack direction, so they appear to revert to their former occupation. But whatever the reason, God had planned it that way so that he can reveal what he has in store for them through the inter- their interaction with the risen Lord Jesus. Let's continue with the story. The disciples were professional fishermen and good at what they did. Fishing was the way that they made a living. At this point, they had confidence in their own skills that they would catch fish. So what happened? Well, despite their best efforts, despite using all their skills, despite knowing the waters of Galilee like the back of their hands, they caught nothing all night. They worked hard. They strived, all to no avail. They were frustrated and tired and wet and deflated. They had failed at the very thing that they were good at. It was now morning, and though weir- and through weary, despondent eyes, when they were about a hundred metres from shore, they looked and could make out a figure standing there. Who is that? They must have wondered. The person on the shore called out to them, friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. We're not told, but at hearing this advice, they might have wondered, who is this guy? Who is he to give us professional, us professional fishermen, advice from the shoreline? They could have reacted in several ways. However, they didn't. And they did did what the man on the shore told them to do. They obeyed. And lo and behold, they caught more fish than they could haul into the boat. At this point, it's worth reflecting on this for a moment. What's going on here? These seasoned professional fishermen fished all night. They used every technique that they knew, yet they still didn't catch any fish. They relied on their own skill and came up empty. It was only when they did what Jesus told them to do that they succeeded. These guys spent three and a half years with Jesus, listening to his teaching, watching as he performed miracles. He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He even raised dead people to life. They witnessed Jesus being crucified and they met him after his resurrection despite all of this. The disciples were still coming to grips with the profound truth that apart from Jesus they could do nothing. This reminds me of some teaching that we received recently about the two trees in the Garden of Eden and the choices that Adam and Eve had to make. The choice was either to seek truth from the tree of knowledge of good and evil or to seek the truth from the tree of life. These disciples faced a similar choice. In the situation that they found themselves in, they relied on their own skill, their own knowledge, but they came up short. It was only when they put their trust in Jesus and what he asked them to do that they caught fish. Jesus the carpenter wasn't a fisherman, yet on his instructions they caught more fish than they could haul into the boat. Their surprise would have been something to see. And what then was their reaction? Let's have a look at the passage. We read that it was John, the author of this book, who first works out what's going on and recognises Jesus on the shore. It's the Lord, he says. As soon as he heard John's words, Peter the impulsive one gathered his garments together And plunged into the sea, swimming towards Jesus. Peter can't get to Jesus fast enough. Forget the fish, Peter had more important things to do. What Peter did was abandon his pride and swam to be with Jesus. In Jewish society, impulsive behavior like this is an indicator that your life is out of control. Rushing around was regarded as being chaotic. As being undignified. Peter didn't care for convention, he didn't care what others thought of his behavior. In doing what he did he humiliated himself in front of his fellow countrymen as he rushed to be with Jesus. He desperately wanted to be with Jesus regardless of what others might think of him. Peter's actions presents us with a similar challenge. Is it our disposition towards Jesus? Are we prepared to be mocked? Are we prepared to be ridiculed or criticized, ostracized, marginalized, and exiled for our behavior towards Jesus? Are we prepared to lower ourselves in the eyes of those around us to follow our Lord? The story continues. Peter is on the shore with Jesus but back in the boat the other disciples are unable to haul in this net full of fish. They're struggling with the 153 fish caught in their net. Professional fishermen, they would routinely count their catch to gauge how many they caught on that day so they could tell those who inquired how many they had, boasting if you like when they met with their fellow fishermen. Knowing their catch would also give them some idea of how many they could sell. We have an exact number. This gives us confidence to know that this event happened. On that day, in that place, seven men caught 153 fish. I wonder how many of us have had discussions with people who say that the Bible is just a fairy story, just fiction. People who say this need to be called out because there is no evidence upon which to base their assertions. The Bible and the Gospels are reliable historical documents. Much of what we read in the Gospels is an eyewitness account of what happened. Therefore, we can trust what the Gospel writers have written. In this passage, we've got a whole lot of details. It occurred on the shores of the Lake Galilee. There were seven disciples present and we have their names. The boat was about a hundred meters offshore. They caught 153 fish and there was a charcoal fireplace. Detail, detail, detail. This writing that we're looking at today is in the style of somebody who was there. He was actually an eyewitness. So what's Jesus doing? He plays a significant part in this story, and there are five things we need to take note of. Jesus initiates contacts with his disciples, he also engages with them in a deeply personal way. He gives relevant commands, he provides for their needs, and he serves them. First of all, how he initiates contact with his disciples. They had seen him as the risen Lord. All the questions they had about his death and resurrection prior to his crucifixion are now behind them. Jesus has chosen to come to the disciples on this occasion. Here we see that Jesus wants to further develop the relationship that he has with them. A commentator says it this way, it is wonderful to think that Jesus showed up at the disciples' workplace, he was interested in all of their life, not just when they attended a religious service. The risen Redeemer and Ruler was showing men his interest and his power in the commonplace of their own lives. Jesus did this from the very beginning of his ministry when he called them to follow him. He initiates contact with them. Not only does he initiate contact, but he also engages with them personally. Friends, have you any fish? He asks them. Friends, fellas, guys, mates, these are all signs of people who are in relationship. Have you any fish? He asks. Undoubtedly, Jesus knew the answer, but by asking the question, he reveals his concern for what his friends are lacking. Also, Jesus, even though he knows that they've failed to catch anything, doesn't belittle them. He doesn't criticise them. He greets them as friends, and as a friend, he's there to help them. And how does he help them? Well, he could have said, better luck next time, guys. Or, never mind all this fishing, let's go and preach the gospel. Or, go and care for the poor. Or perhaps even, let's gather together in prayer. He does none of these. He offers a relevant command to them. It's relevant because it specifically addresses their needs. He helps them in a practical way. Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some fish, he says. The disciples obey and catch more fish than they can haul into the boat. By obeying Jesus' command, they have their needs met. He provides for them by giving them more fish than they can haul into the boat. In the same way through his ministry, he provides for the needs of the hungry, the thirsty, the sick, the blind, the lost and the dead. And there's a consistency in the way that he deals with people. He provides for their needs, but he does so as a servant. Jesus calls them, come and have breakfast. And then he proceeds to serve them fish and bread beside a charcoal fire. The pattern of Jesus in his interaction with his disciples is to initiate with them, provide for them, and then serve them personally. The glory of his resurrection hasn't changed his heart. The man who is God has risen from the dead and is serving breakfast to a group of his friends. Where did Jesus get the fish? Where did he get the bread and, and the charcoal fire? We're not told but what we can say is that he will and does provide what's needed. We don't need to know all the details, just accept what Jesus is offering. And how does that relate to us today? In Matthew 4, verses 18 to 20, we read this. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, Peter and Andrew left their nets and followed him. This reminds me of a song I was taught as a youngster in Sunday school. I will make you fishes of men, is the uh, text. I'll just read it out to you, I won't sing it. I will make you fishes of men, fishes of men, fishes of men. I will make you fishes of men if you follow me. If you follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Jesus promises that he will make us fishes of men if we follow him. In John 20, Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection and commissioned them. He said, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Jesus wants his disciples to be disciple makers. He wants them to rely upon him as they go out and tell others about the good news. Even after his resurrection, he has the same mission. His focus in the 40 days between the time that he was resurrected and the time he ascended into heaven, he spends time with his disciples. He reaffirms with them what he has taught them over the past three and a half years. He commissions them to spread the gospel, not based on their own knowledge or their own intellect, but to be based on and relying upon his guidance. Furthermore, because we know where the story goes from here, we know that this guidance comes from his word, through his spirit. When the disciples came to shore, including a very wet Peter, they saw a fire of coals there, with fish on it and bread. The resurrected Jesus was still serving them. He took the trouble to prepare a fire and cook food for his disciples. Bring some fish, which you have just caught, he said. The order of events showed that Jesus had food. They were adding to his menu. They didn't make it. He took the bread and he gave it to them. This is a picture of intimate, friendly fellowship. There's also a parallel with his actions at the last summer when he took bread and broke it. Another commentator suggests that there was something solemn and significant in his manner, indicating that they were to consider him as a person who supplied all their wants. And another very famous commentator, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, has this to say. They ate the bread and fish that morning. I doubt not in self-humiliation. Peter looked with tears in his eyes at the fire of coals. Remembering how he stood and warmed himself when he denied his master. Thomas also stood there wondering what he should have dared to ask, such proofs of a fact most clear. All of them felt that they could shrink into nothing behind his divine presence since they had behaved so badly. This is perhaps why they didn't dare ask him who he was. Because they knew full well that he was the Lord. Face to face they were with his risen divine presence. The Holy One amongst them failed. The Holy One amongst them failed disciples. Amongst sinners. We're all sinners and failures before the Lord. We all know that he knows everything that we are. Everything that we do. For nothing is hidden from him. Despite this. He still seeks to relate to us and he still wants to be in relationship with him. But not on our terms, only on his. Not in our own strength, only in his strength. Not with our skill and knowledge, only with his skill and his knowledge. Breakfast is taken at the beginning of each new day. It prepares us for the day ahead. It provides physical nourishment for the work that we must undertake. Each new day brings its own challenges and opportunities. Having taken care of our physical needs, isn't it also true that we need to walk each day in the Lord and that we all must, we all must take on board some spiritual food? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Breakfast is food for our bodies, God's Word is food for our soul. It will nourish us as we walk with Him through the day. It's spiritual food that will set our focus on the things of God. He will guide our thoughts, He will guide our words, and He will guide what we do. We have seen from this story that to rely upon our own skill and knowledge will often see us come up short. Or succeeded doing the things that we ought not to be doing. It's only when we rely upon the Word of God and on His Spirit to guide us that we will do what God designed us to do. Perhaps we need to start each day with not one but maybe two breakfasts, one for our physical needs and one for our spiritual needs. It's my prayer that you will from this day forward Invite Jesus to feed you at the beginning of each new day with the food that you need for your soul. Please join me as we pray for the strength to seek God each day, to accept his invitation to eat as he serves us the spiritual food that we need to sustain us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would remind us that you provide us with the spiritual food that we need to sustain ourselves day by day. Help us with the notion of having two breakfasts. Remind us each day that we need to nourish our bodies and nourish our souls. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.